Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Washington Post columnist, successful YouTuber, and popular past guest, J.J. McCullough. We previously spoke in May and August about a range of topics, including the Conservative Party's leadership race, as well as his own role in galvanizing opposition to the Trudeau government's Bill C-11, which extends the CanCon regime to online content such as his own. I'm grateful to have JJ back as we approach the end of 2022 to catch up on some of those topics and new ones, including his recent interview with Pierre Polyev and his take on the politics of British Columbia, his home province. JJ, thanks once again for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Happy to be back. You recently interviewed official opposition leader Pierre Polyev for your YouTube channel. The interview has more than 200,000 views and counting. You had met Polyev before. What struck you about the interview? I suppose just what a sort of disciplined communicator he is. You know, he speaks so purposefully, even when completely off the cuff. You know, I was told that he didn't really prep for the interview, but was just sort of speaking extemporaneously. And he is just very good at doing that. Like he is just very on on message all of the time. And I suppose that what that revealed to me is that he is a man in some ways that is kind of just a purely political creature. You know, every sort of time I tried to ask sort of gingerly sort of steer the conversation in a way that would maybe be a little bit more personal or a little bit more reflective, you know, he's still very on message, on task all the time. The, The most revealing moment, I think, was when I asked him, and this is a question I like to ask politicians because I think it it can open them up a little bit. I asked him sort of like, what's the biggest misconception that people have about you? And it was kind of interesting to me just how he was a little flummoxed by that question, like that it had never really thought of himself. He had never really thought to think of himself in that way, in the way that others see him. He's just so focused on the task of, of you know, getting elected and, and you know, furthering his political career. So, I mean, I do I do like him overall. I, I, I feel like I'm pleased to see him in the position that he's in, as I think most conservatives are, and that's why he was able to get elected quite so easily. But there are some politicians in this world that you meet, and, you know, you kind of feel like if you cut them open, there's only politics inside, and I kind of feel like he's a little bit in, in that category. And what that means to me is, I suppose, that there is a degree to which I think a lot of conservatives are in a very sort of transactional relationship with him, where they very much view him as like their instrument in order to bring about a rather sort of orthodox conservative political agenda. And I think he's perfectly happy to fulfill that role. You're one of many prominent online voices and alternative media figures that Polyev has spoken to since becoming conservative leader. 
in response, you'll probably know there's been plenty of ink spilled about his neglect of the legacy media. What do you think about this strategy, JJ, in the modern media environment? Is it possible for him to go about the task of building the party support and prosecuting an election campaign without speaking to the major media outlets? I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting strategy, and it depends what I think it's very important to, that we sort of ponder what is like the underlying motive of the strategy. If the motive of the strategy is simply we hate the mainstream media and we don't want to talk to them out of spite, then I think that that is possibly a problematic strategy if the mainstream media, like it or not, has a broad you know audience and a broad reach. If, however, the strategy is that the media landscape in Canada has fundamentally changed and we can't take for granted certain assumptions about who has the biggest reach, then I think it's a perfectly defensible strategy. You know, as you said, my interview with him got 200,000 views. And then if we compare that to the other interview that he did since becoming leader with the post-media uh, post columnist, which is also up on YouTube, you can see that that has about 200,000 views as well. So somebody like me, somebody within the sort of the new media space, I think if we're just going to look at raw sort of numeric metrics, you know, we're, we're sort of punching at, at equal levels. And so I, I think that if that is the motivation, then I think it's a very justifiable one, because I think that there are there's lots of podcasts, there's lots of YouTubers, social media personalities who have enormous, enormous reach. And I think that a savvy politician has to sort of wake up to that. And then that being said, I do think that... Uh, if you're having a media strategy, however, that is too animated by spite, then you're possibly shooting yourself in the foot. But if you're cutting yourself off from legacy media, that yeah, maybe they will give you a harder time. Maybe they will ask more unfair gotcha questions. But you know, their reach is pretty broad uh, as well. And so I, I kind of, I if I was the man running his communication strategy, I would very much favor an all of the above approach rather than seeing new media as an alternative to old. One thing you asked Polyev about is the growing interest in and support for him from younger voters. As someone attuned to the viewpoints of a younger audience, what do you think is going on here, JJ? I've read in some places that, well, millennials lean left, Gen Z in part because they've encountered the full expression of so-called woke politics on campus and elsewhere are more conservative as a result. Is that your sense? How do you explain Polyev's youthful support and do you think it will have an effect on the next federal election? It's a good question. I definitely, well, I mean, for starters, I suppose we should contextualize this a bit and sort of say that whenever we're talking about Canadian politics, we always have to be clear that we're talking, like when someone is is winning a demographic per se, it's often like in the high 30s compared to their competitors that's maybe in the mid 30s and that kind of thing. So it's important that we don't overstate this. It is it is a sort of competitive race on all metrics. And I think that includes demographics like like youth. But that said, I do very much agree with, with what you said when you were sort of hinting at the idea of, of the woke kind of stuff. Definitely, I see in terms of my YouTube uh, audience and, and sort of other young people I deal with is that to a lot of people who the Gen Z kind of crowd who grew up in, in that sort of milieu, like their understanding of what is the dominant access point of politics is very much this kind of woke activist, sort of what we in the older generation would call sort of politically correct, uh, politically correctness kind of style debates. And it's, it's, it's important that we sort of be aware 
that every generation has a different kind of crux point in which they start to calibrate their understanding of well, what differentiates right from left. You know, previous generation, it would have been things like, you know, socialism versus free markets and stuff like that. When I was growing up, honestly, a lot of the axis that helped animate my own understanding of politics was the war on terror. You know, are you soft on the war on terror? Or are you more hawkish against radical Islam and that kind of thing? But for the Gen Zers, I really do think a lot of it comes down to like how quick are you to get offended by things, you know, kind of how melodramatic are you going to be about your taking of offense versus how, uh, you know, kind of cool are you with being kind of trollish or being like playfully offensive and, and, and bothersome in, in that way to the powers that be. And I think that, you know, Polyev has done a pretty decent job. It's like, he doesn't necessarily have like a really particularly robust anti-woke agenda, which I think is kind of curious. But at the same time, he does sort of signal that he's down on wokeness. And, you know, he uses woke as a slur and in, in speeches, even in contexts where it doesn't necessarily make total sense. But he, it's important to him that he signifies that he is on the tribe of the anti-woke. And I think there is a lot of young people who don't necessarily have a kind of coherent, orthodox, sort of conservative ideological understanding of the world, but they know that they're on team anti-woke. And so as long as Pierre, you know, continues to signal that, I think that he'll have some resonance with the uh, with the youth. Uh, one of Polyev's latest videos is on what he characterizes as the failures of the harm reduction model to deal with drug addiction and the opioid crisis, which is present in communities across the country, but especially your hometown of Vancouver. This is a subject that you've written a lot about, in particular, your own view that the elite consensus in favor of harm reduction is failing to deal with and arguably exacerbating the problem. Polyev's video provoked a strong reaction from those invested in that consensus. Why don't you just reflect on how we've gotten to this point and the significance of Polyev not just treating it as a defensive issue, as conservatives have done in the past, but as an offensive one. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I've been, I've lived in Vancouver my whole life. I'm 38 years old now. And so I very much remember when the harm reduction strategy was first unveiled in the early 2000s as part of the so-called four pillars approach to dealing with what was at the time sort of seen as a sort of unacceptably high rate of overdose deaths, which I believe was just like in like over a hundred a year was sort of seen as, as sort of, you know, beyond the pale. And so they unveiled what was supposed to be a four pillar approach, which had harm reduction, which was to sort of say supervised safe injection sites in which addicts would have access to clean needles would be one aspect of an approach that would also entail, you know, robust treatment options, robust enforcement of, of, the, of the drug laws against drug dealers and, and so forth, but then also sort of conceding that, well, there are some people who are just destined to be users. And so at the very least, we can provide them with a, a sort of clean space in which, to, uh, in which to inject with the goal of then helping them get treatment options and so forth. But what's been interesting to observe in, you know, the last 20 some years is just the degree to which the uh, the the safe treatment the uh, the has sort of consumed everything else like that there is no other approach that is really on the table anymore and I think that that represents a kind of curious ideological evolution on drugs which is to say it was it was interesting I was looking at one of the uh, the statements that one of the politicians made in regards to uh, 
sort of denouncing uh, Polyev's uh, comments. And they were talking about like, you know, substance use and how we shouldn't stigmatize substance use. And that unto itself is just is such an interesting evolution where we don't even use the language of, of treating this sort of behavior as problematic anymore. It is just merely a behavior. In fact, it's a medical condition. We have these ads on the radio in British Columbia all the time that say, it's not a choice, it's a medical condition. And so you just the shift away from even using language that portrays this as a problem to be solved has been really, you know, quite interesting. And it reflects, I don't know, just like you were sort of saying, a kind of shifting elite consensus in which the, the mentality always goes towards just less and less judgment, less and less willingness to treat this as anything wrong. This is just an alternative way of being. It's a lifestyle and a medical condition and thus something that should not be judged in any context. It should just be managed and then not only managed, but managed safely, which is this idea that like fundamentally drug or substance use is a lifestyle that can be on some level safely managed and can lead to, I suppose, a sort of long and happy and satisfied life. We even have these, uh, what I think are like quite preposterous ads that are all over the place in British Columbia as well, where they have these uh, big pictures of sort of like respectable members of bourgeois society. And it's like father, dad, you know, businessman, addict, which is the idea of like it could affect anyone. And like the drug addicts are amongst us all. And so Pierre Polyev has really sort of pushed back against that because I think that his sort of rhetorical line on all of this is to treat it as a problem. He uses very explicit language. He says, you know, these people are injecting poison in their bodies. They're still dying in numbers that are unacceptably high, much higher, frankly, than it even was when the, when the uh, four pillar approach was first rolled out. And so just in will in his willingness to just state that this is not okay, that massive rates of drug addiction and drug death, despite a climate of non-judgment and sort of accommodation, the fact that this is continuing to go on and that this is not something that we as a civilized society should want, that has got people really in a tizzy because again, it just pushes back so hard on what has been of sort of gradually calcifying uh, ideological consensus that spans all political parties in this province at the municipal and the provincial level. And so, yeah, it doesn't shock me at all that uh, he's getting as much blowback as, as he is, but I'm happy that he's chosen this to be one of his marquee issues. Let me follow up on that insightful answer with a question about the role of stigma. You mentioned a couple of times, JJ, that part of the evolution you describe has been about abandoning judgment and in turn stigma as a tool that we use to try to encourage certain behaviors associated with positive economic and, and social outcomes for individuals. What do you attribute the decline in a conception of stigma as sort of part of the tools available to a society to deal with problematic behaviors like drug use? Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you say that because I don't think as a whole, like civilization, elite, conventional wisdom, whatever you want to call it, has necessarily come to a like coherent consensus when it comes to stigma, because we do stigmatize a tremendous number of activities. You know, we stigmatize smoking, we stigmatize eating unhealthy food, certainly like during COVID, the power of stigma was like very bluntly enforced in order to get people to you know, get vaccinated and wear masks and to socially distance and so forth. So there is an understanding that social stigma to sort of shame 
you know, quote unquote, bad behavior as a tool of getting people to kind of shape up and exert some agency over their own lives and behave responsibly to protect their health and the health of others. Like there is a, a concession that that is something that's perfectly uh, you know, reasonable to exercise in the pursuit of, of various public policy goals. You know, I wrote about this once in the Washington Post where it's like the only kind of belief or the only sort of way I can make sense of why we use stigma to promote certain types of behavior, but never use stigma in the realm of hard drug use is that hard drug use is disproportionately uh, a sort of a, a, a problem that is borne by sort of the quote unquote underclass, sort of like the lower classes of society. And it just seems to me that there's a kind of soft condescension that's going on here where there's an understanding that sort of like reasonable middle class people have agency over their lives. They can make reasonable decisions to not smoke or to not get drunk and get behind the wheel. And that if we propagandize them and stigmatize bad behavior, that it will work in some form. We can change their behavior. But the condescending uh, attitude comes in the form of believing that sort of lower class people, sort of underclass people, that these people have no agency over their own lives. They're just sort of, uh, you know, completely captured by their disease, the disease of drug addiction, and that they have no independent agency to exert any control over it. And so the best we can do is just kind of pat them on the head and say, you poor, poor thing. We'll put you in a sort of a clean room where you can have all the heroin you want, and we'll do our best to make sure that, uh, you know, your lifestyle is not endangered in any way, even though it is inherently by definition dangerous lifestyle. We have sort of convinced ourselves that these people are, are sort of sick and diseased beyond beyond any help at all. You know, it's actually interesting that just the other day, the the BC, what is it, the the Conference of Municipalities in, in British Columbia, you know, they were debating resolutions of whether or not to kind of formally come out against treatment altogether, like involuntary treatment, which has become now a, a stigmatized thing where it's like, well, that's part of the problem, you know, saying that these people need to be fixed and putting them into treatment against their will. It was curious, though, because in some ways this is now even sort of hypocritical because it's sort of saying, well, you know, they can't exert any agency over the addiction, but they can exert agency over the decision to get treatment or not. And so we should never, ever sort of suggest that they should seek involuntary treatment because that should be their decision. But somehow, you know, <laughs> the uh, Premier Horgan once got in a, a lot of trouble for suggesting that uh, as terrible as drug addiction is, it does begin with a bad choice. You know, he had to walk that back. But I, I do believe that. And I, I, I do believe that it's important that we understand that just as you have agency to make bad decisions initially, you have an agency to, uh, you know, ultimately go down the path of recovery. And there's a tremendous amount of success stories that uh, provide evidence for that. And it just seems kind of sad and miserable and, and morally wrong to sort of have a, a sort of moral, you know, understanding of this situation that's completely reversed. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I know it involves a degree of 
sloganeering, but I've always been taken by a line from former president of the American Enterprise Institute, Arthur Brooks, who says, people are assets to be cultivated, not liabilities to be managed. And there's an extent to which the harm reduction model comes to see people as liabilities to be managed. If we can shift the conversation a bit, it's worth noting that Polyev, in a way, is building on progress from the Kenny government in Alberta, which championed a different model, sometimes called the Alberta model, of focused on treatment and recovery after taking office in 2018. JJ, Kenny's sacking as premier would probably not have been something that I would have bet on four years ago, especially if the bet involved Doug Ford also being reelected in Ontario with a larger majority than he started with. As someone with a pretty good intuition about conservative politics, how do you explain Ford outlasting Kenny? What does it tell us about the state of Canadian conservatism? That is a very, a very good question because it does kind of defy any ideological explanation, doesn't it? You know, Kenny has enjoyed a reputation. You know, I've been critical of Kenny on on several occasions, but there can be no sort of denying that for much of his career, he enjoyed a reputation as the sort of the conservative's conservative. You know, he was a more orthodox uh, thinker. Uh, in the Stephen Harper government, he was on sort of like the right of the party, but on like the thoughtful right, you know, the guy who had a sort of philosophical pedigree that was, you know, beyond reproach. And then when he became premier of Alberta, I think there was a great deal of sort of excitement about what that would mean, like an indisputably conservative government. Whereas, you know, Premier Ford, I think, was always sort of seen as as the kind of populist kind of character. There was, I think, some hope initially that his government you know, perhaps represented a sort of populist, unapologetic kind of uh, conservative government because, and this is the thing, because he gives off that vibe, right? He gives off the impression of being more ideological and more kind of to the barricades, kind of, I'm going to fight for what I believe, you know, come hell or high water. Like he just gives off that vibe. And I suppose what, and I feel like I might have even talked about this in one of our previous episodes, it does kind of make you wonder, like, just how much of politics is vibes? Like, how much of politics is just what people project onto their political leaders, what they assume they believe, what they assume, you know, they think that they're motivated by? And and that's really all it is. And that, like, on some level, like, Kenny, in his manner, he is, like, a more sort of cerebral, kind of more nerdish kind of character. And that people kind of projected onto him, I think, within his own sort of party, obviously, and that's why he got sacked, as being kind of like a more moderate and more, like, eager to compromise for the sake of compromise type of guy, a more establishment kind of guy than he probably was ever in his in his heart of hearts. Whereas Ford, because he's a little bit more brash and a little bit more unvarnished and, you know, I think just, uh, let's say, slightly less sort of intellectual sort of character, people sort of take some of that sort of, you know, packaging around him as a sign that maybe he's he's more of a, he's more of a sort of like principled fighter more of an uncompromising figure than he actually is. I don't know. Like, this is not a perfectly good explanation because you also sort of then have to factor in, well, how do these people resonate with the broader public in addition to conservatives? But I do think 
that it is very just odd to me that Jason Kenney faces, faced and was dethroned by a very powerful challenge from his right, and yet the challenges to Doug Ford's right got absolutely nowhere. I know that there was multiple, you know, sort of small right-wing parties that attempted to challenge him in the most recent provincial election, and they got nowhere. And as far as I know, there is no credible challenger to his premiership, to his leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. And it just seems inexplicable to me. People have sort of, you know, sort of smarter people than I have written editorials and stuff trying to come up with some theory about Doug Ford's, you know, flavor of conservatism or, you know, what it represents for the future of conservative politics in Canada. You know, none of which has been particularly persuasive to me because I think it's and you guys have talked about this a lot on some of your 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 hub dialogues. You had one, a good one just the other day where I think it was you, Sean, who just sort of characterized you know, Ford is just kind of being a quite reactionary guy who just sort of bounces from crisis to crisis. And his approach to dealing with any crisis, whether it's, you know, the strike or COVID or whatever, is just kind of animated by a kind of guns a-blazing, like overconfident sort of brash <laughs> attitude, right? And it doesn't, it's it's very hard to weave all of that into a into a single coherent theory and animating philosophy of, of, of that he's bringing to government, other than he is just, for whatever reason, a guy that a lot of people trust, and that includes people within his conservative base. The BC Liberal Party, now the BC Union, is set to try to dislodge the BC New Democrats from government in the province's next election in 2024. We don't just have a new name for the BC Liberals, but we also have a new NDP Premier. Do you want to help our Central Canadian listeners understand the state of play in BC politics? My outsider perspective is that the BC Union's coalition is fracturing at the same time that politics across the Western world is shifting in part from materialistic economic questions to more cultural ones. In that context, you have the conservative elements of the BC Union motivated by anti-woke arguments and the BC Liberal contingent essentially having Justin Trudeau's views on race, gender, sexuality, etc. If you agree with that formulation, is it possible to bring these different factions together in a durable way? How, in other words, JJ, is the union sustainable? Yeah, so British Columbia politics is, I suppose, somewhat unique in that sense. You know, this is, and this is actually, it's a much older legacy in British Columbia politics than it sometimes gets credit for, the idea of sort of federal liberals and federal conservatives working together. It goes back even into the early 20th century, you know, when we actually used to have coalition governments between the two formal parties, and then eventually sort of the Liberal Party, uh, you know, sort of became the more successful of those two. And then the Liberal Party went into a period of, of sort of decline when the Social Credit Party was kind of on the ascendancy, and then sort of rushed back when the Social Credit Party in turn declined. You know, what has kept the BC Liberal Party sort of active and what provided them with, you know, multiple back-to-back -back majority governments during the 2000s was just a deep, deep animus for the NDP. You know, people like to characterize the BC Liberal Party, you know, in some corners as being like, well, they're actually conservative or they're the, the right-wing option in British Columbia. And there's definitely like a conservative faction of it. But their animating philosophy, if we're going to talk about animating philosophies of provincial parties, had always just been a real, real, real sort of doom and gloom attitude towards the NDP, that the NDP, you know, which I think quite objectively mismanaged British Columbia quite badly in the 1990s, like that they were just incompetent, that they were these sort of wild eyed socialists 
that were that hated the free market and were just so captive to their ideology. And if they were ever allowed back in power again, you know, they would drive the province into the ground and ruin the economy and drive people into Alberta and so on and so forth. And those kind of doom and gloom stories were very persuasive for you know, close to a generation in, in BC politics. And they they kept the B, the BC Liberal Party continuously getting reelected. And then the BC Liberals, I think, proceeded to govern in a way that wasn't overly ideological in either direction, because that was never their mandate. Their mandate was just provide better government for British Columbia than the uh, BC NDP alternative. Then when, uh, you know, our the last BC Liberal Premier, Christy Clark, you know, she was not popular and her government became sort of, you know, associated with, with scandal and corruption and, uh, you know, just kind of tiredness, as I think any government that's been in power for, I believe, 15 years, which they had been at that point. But the, the, what the, the relevant variable then is that when the BC NDP was like very begrudgingly elected back to power. And we should remember that when Premier John Horgan was elected for the first time, it was with this incredibly narrow minority government that he was only able to cobble together with the help of the Green Party. You know, but Premier Horgan's government did not govern in a radical, wide-eyed socialist direction. In fact, Premier Horgan himself always represented the moderate faction of his own party. I remember actually interviewing him years ago, and he made a big show of saying, like, I'm not a socialist. I've never associated myself with being a socialist. That's not my identity. And so he then proceeded to govern in, I think, a rather moderate and pragmatic way, particularly, and I think he doesn't get enough credit for this, on COVID, and that we in British Columbia under an NDP government had a much more moderate uh, approach to COVID than the Conservative government of Ontario did. But the point is, is that, you know, the NDP government has proceeded to sort of represent what I think is the new kind of broad center left or even sort of centrist governing coalition in British Columbia that appeals to middle class voters, that appeals to the cities, that is, you know, associated with sort of stability, good governance and so forth. And then that, I think, has really taken a lot of the wind out of the VC Liberals sales because that is what they want to run on. That is what they want their identity to be. And I think that what is happening now and to sort of get back to your original sort of formation, I do think that there is a kind of existential question now, now that it becomes the BC United Party, right? It's like, what exactly does this party stand for? And I think that you're getting into the, the issue now where you do have a more kind of like the right wing of the party is becoming, I think, a little bit more ascendant in part, because I do think some of the more moderate kind of like center left people have made peace with the NDP government. And so as a result, this is why you get things like the rebranding initiative, why you get somebody like Kevin Falcon, who is the new leader of the party, who has often been considered kind of like more on the right of the party. But the problem is that I think as the base of the party is getting a little bit more right wing, the kind of elite of the party, I think, is still pretty centrist. So it is it is and, you know, very based in Vancouver and very sort of hung up on, I think, pretty sort of standard Vancouver-y type of issues. And so you do get this kind of like weird, it's a weird, weird party these days because its base is very rural. Like they don't have any support at all in sort of the greater Vancouver area. You basically have to go, you know, like to Abbotsford or something before you start finding BC liberal support. So you have this like very rural based party that is increasingly defined by a kind of right wing base that nevertheless is sort of governed and has their priorities set by a kind of urban sort of, I would say, more kind of progressive center-left sort of centrist kind of elite who dictate what the priorities are. So it's 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 a curious thing, and I'm not convinced at all that that's a, uh, that that's a winning strategy. I have often thought 
that like if we just had an open unapologetic conservative party that just said we're going to run on conservative principles we're going to be open we're going to call ourselves conservatives we're going to identify the ndp as a left-wing party we're going to run on sort of like center-right solutions that i would just be a much clearer better political system than this business of trying to have an ndp party on the one hand and then a party on the other hand that just tries to be all things to all people satisfying no one no well, there's a lot of insight thanks for the education on on bc politics let's take a Bill C-11, for which you've emerged as one of the most articulate and principled critics. To refresh listeners' memories, Bill C-11 essentially proposes to extend the CanCon regime to previously unregulated online content such that the distinction between JJ and CTV would be significantly diminished. JJ, one frustrating part about the debate, for me, is the tendency for political actors on both sides to devolve into sloganeering which seems to obscure the fundamental policy issue here. Traditional broadcasters, as you've said in some of your comments to Parliament, have a point. The system is asymmetric between you and CTV in terms of financial and content obligations. But then the question is, how do you go about solving for the asymmetry? One option is to treat CTV the way that you're treated. That is to say, deregulate traditional broadcasters as the government has done for online content. The other is to do the opposite and treat you like them. And the government has obviously chosen the latter. Isn't the right approach, though, say, for the conservative opposition to simply champion getting rid of the CanCon regime altogether and solving the asymmetry that way? You know, it seems to me that would certainly accord with Polyev's overarching message of freedom. If you agree, why do you think that's not quite been the party's position? What's standing in its way? Yeah, that's a it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, I definitely think that that is the most obvious solution, right? Is when you're dealing with a kind of regulatory asymmetry, you can either sort of share the burden <laughs> to the, the newcomers, or you can lessen the burden on the, uh, on the legacy uh, sort of players. And it just seems to me that like, the, the legacy media, and I've seen this now, because I've been in committees with these people, and they often, like the legacy media people, like you don't get the sense that they're like excited to play with the CRTC's rules. You don't get the idea that like this has been a great boon for their bottom line or for their sort of creative expression and their ability to sort of pursue the kind of media projects that they want. They just have an idea that like government has tied one of their hands behind their back. And now there's people like me come along that don't have any of those kind of, uh, you know, restraints. And we're just having our merry way and making a ton of money and not having to dance to any government's tune. And that there's something fundamentally unfair about that. And that they spend so much time trying to comply with this onerous regulatory burden. And that there's other people that are just, you know, I believe one of the, uh, one of the, um, one of the witnesses and one of the committees that I was at sort of talked about the idea of like new media, just kind of like crashing on the couch that old media has built. Right. So I, I'm sort of, sort of sensitive to that, but and I, and I do think, and I think that particularly as well, you know, the old head of the CRTC, uh, Conrad von Finkelstein came out and he sort of had a big line where he sort of said like, we're going to put audience needs first. And I don't think that that was actually fulfilled by the CRTC, but the idea that the CRTC even felt a need to sort of concede that is, I think, a bit of a tacit acknowledgement that the heavy-handed regulatory uh, approach to sort of dictating things like Canadian content quotas and, you know, heavy subsidies for, for different artists and entertainers that some Ottawa committee has deemed 
you know, are going to sort of enrich the culture in some sort of way. Like, I just think that that has been an experiment that has failed. Canadians have not warmed to CanCon. You know, Canadians, in fact, go out of their way to avoid CanCon. And I think a lot of the stuff that has been heavily subsidized and promoted has not actually made much of a cultural impact on this country, has not actually changed Canadian tastes in any sort of substantial way, and has not weaned us off of, you know, American culture the way it was supposed to. And so I think that in that climate, you have to be willing to sort of concede that this is an experiment that has failed and what can we do to sort of concede reality and genuinely do put consumers first what can we do to make a truly sort of consumer centric uh audience centric uh approach to uh media and entertainment culture in this country and so i do agree like this is the completely sort of like low-hanging fruit of for the conservative party i suppose the problem though is that all there, like I, I do think like a lot of middle-class Canadians are kind of hypocrites about this kind of stuff, right? So it's like, on the one hand, they will whine and complain and say, we're so bombarded with American culture in this country. You know, we have no culture of our own and this kind of thing. And then on the other hand, if you look at their actual diet, well, what are they watching? You know, they're watching, you know, Marvel movies and uh, Netflix and so on and so forth, right? So there, there is this kind of sense that if a conservative politician came out and sort of said, like, the CRT sucks, let's abolish their mandate and get rid of all CanCon uh, requirements and so forth, you could imagine how that would open them up to a bit of, uh, you know, some partisan attacking that would question their patriotism, question their commitment to Canadian cultural sovereignty and that kind of thing. So I do just think that there's kind of a timidity about it. I do think that there's also, you know, frankly, there's kind of a Quebec elephant in the room where to this day, I still don't completely understand the degree to which like C11 is like secretly just this Quebec motivated thing. And that we're all kind of going through this kabuki in which we pretend that this is about English Canada, but really like there's this kind of like hidden agenda that it's actually just about some very distinct Quebec media ecosystem and Quebec sort of cultural players that, you know, the rest of us are completely oblivious to. But the idea that like Canadian cultural policy is really just kind of like a Quebec cultural policy that you know, kind of goes in under the radar and, you know, we're like Anglo Canada is kind of like the collateral damage in terms of our ability to pursue the kind of media that we want. So I don't know. I don't know exactly why this is not something that they've that like just, well, I guess, you know, I will give Pierre Polyev credit. Like he has sort of signaled the CRTC is one of the gatekeepers that he views as one of the big obstacles in his sort of anti-gatekeeper agenda. And, you know, it's it's still relatively early in his leadership. And who knows, maybe when it, the time comes to run in the general election, he'll have a more sort of fleshed out theory of, of a, a more kind of uh, robust deregulatory approach to Canadian media and entertainment. As someone who produces content for global audiences at The Washington Post and YouTube, you still produce quite a lot of Canadian content. Can we just talk a bit about that? Do you notice a drop in engagement if your topics are Canadian rather than universal? And if not, what do you attribute that to? Is it merely the quality of the content or are people actually interested in Canada? So my main audience is Americans that are interested in Canadian things, which is interesting because like the whole kind of theory of CanCon, I think in some ways posits that such people do not exist, right? Like the, 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 the theory is that audience for in Canada and that that's why we need to kind of create this kind of like walled garden approach in which we make Canadian content for Canadians and sort of keep out the foreign stuff and, and that kind of thing. But no, I, I've, I've found that when I make explicitly Canadian content, it often does very well indeed. Um, I actually, it's 
sort of incentivizes me to create more Canadian content, not less, sometimes even more than I want to. Like I, I've been enjoying making a kick of, of sort of American uh, cultural analysis videos recently. And I mean, I do that because I think of Canadian and American content as kind of being one and the same. I don't even, I don't like to use the awkward phrase North American culture because I kind of feel like that that gives Canada a little bit too much credit in some ways. I think that we are a kind of like cultural extension of a larger American civilization and that's fine. That is just part of what Canada is and I'm fine conceding that. But at the same time, whenever I do those kind of videos, I do get a lot of comments where even from my American audience where they sort of say like, can you talk more about Canada? How about Canada? Like what is the Canadian version of this? What is the Canadian version of that? Like there's this huge appetite to learn about Canada, which really goes against the idea that sort of Americans are either like arrogant know-it-alls about Canada or that just, they're just powerfully disinterested. I do think that the internet has really raised awareness in many remarkable and understated ways about just the diversity of the modern world. And that has really whetted a lot of people's appetites to learn more about these countries that they previously didn't think that much about. So I'm probably like, like outside of like mainstream media stuff, I'm probably like one of the leading Canadian cultural content creators on YouTube in the sense of making explicitly Canadian content about Canada. But because I do it for an international audience, as opposed to appease, you know, Canadian regulators who have their own theories of what CanCon should be, you know, I guess in some ways I haven't gotten a tremendous amount of, of credit for what I do, but that's fine. You know, I'm not doing it to, to appease regulators. I'm not even necessarily doing it to appease an international audience. I just enjoy bringing awareness of Canada to the world and, you know, being able to work through myths and preconceptions and stereotypes and and all of that kind of stuff like it's it's been incredibly rewarding because ultimately you know at the end of the day like i'm not the most rah-rah patriotic guy in the world but canada is what i know and canada is what i know best and i like talking about things that i know best and i like talking about things that i have deep familiarity with and that's what i've built my youtube career on and it's what i'm going to continue to do final question for you as we approach the end of 2022 what has surprised you in Canadian policy and politics over the course of the year? I mentioned Kenny's sacking or Ford's re-election, which might be options. Polyev's overwhelming victory as conservative leader, as you said earlier, is probably less a surprise. The rise of the trucker convoy, perhaps. The Trudeau government's apparent shift on China is kind of interesting. All this to say, what would you include on your list of political surprises in 2022? Okay, let me let me let me choose a, a kind of a bit of a curveball here. One thing that did surprise me a bit is the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth's death. So I have been very anti-monarchy. Basically, it's like one of the very first issues I ever took a position on when I was a teenager was opposing Canada's ties to the British monarchy, and it's still something I feel very principled on. And I suppose what was interesting was that in the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth's death. Uh, you know, sort of within the kind of the small R Republican community in Canada, you know, which I've been an active member of for, for you know, a couple of decades now, there had always been this understanding that when Queen Elizabeth dies, like Canada is going to noticeably shift away from the monarchy or like that she is kind of like the last kind of like lingering thread and that people are fundamentally loyal to her on a personal level, but not really to the institution per se. And I suppose that what has been discouraging for anti-monarchy people like me was just a revelation that there really is no anti-monarchy sentiment at all present in the Canadian elite, you know, be it on the Liberal Party, the Conservative Party, even I think substantially on in the NDP. 
you know, in a lot of other countries, you consider the furthest left party to at least be, you know, relatively clear and principled in its opposition to monarchy. But at the at the best, you can say that the monarchy issue is divisive within the NDP and that they don't have a desire to like push hard on it. So, you know, there is no sense at all that Canada is is that Canada's establishment is at all eager to sort of start a conversation about this issue, even though the Queen's passing provided an obvious opportunity to do so. The monarchy has been solidified, it has been reaffirmed, it has been, its relevance has been, if anything, sort of consolidated in, in terms of the various ceremonies and, and pomp and so forth that occurred in the aftermath of, of the Queen's death. And so I do think that that's, that's relevant. I mean, the issues that you brought up are a lot more significant in the grand scheme of Canadian politics. But just as somebody that's been just a very, you know, close follower of of this aspect of our of our political system, I, I do think it's it's not insignificant. And it's not insignificant because I think it also represents like the monarchy can be sort of seen as a proxy for a kind of status quoist bias that I think exists within the elite of this country, where there is just a sort of lack of imagination when it comes to like reimagining some of the big questions involving how this country is governed and sort of like the component parts of our of our constitutional architecture. And I do think that like, if there is a lack of curiosity for re-examining something that in my mind, at least, is as self-evidently sort of preposterous and non-functional as the monarchy, you know, then that doesn't give me a lot of hope that this country is, that this country's elite at the very least is intellectually prepared to deal with some of these other, I think, important constitutional debates and discussions and re-examinations that we have to have. It's a good answer as your answers have been throughout now three appearances on Hub Dialogues. As we come to an end of 2022, JJ, you presently hold the title for most appearances on our podcast. We'll have to send you (laughs) one of our Hub baseball caps to acknowledge your three times. I want to thank you for joining Hub Dialogues. Uh, JJ McCullough, Washington Post columnist, successful YouTuber, popular guest, and look forward to having you back on the podcast early in 2023. Thank you so much, Sean. Each appearance has been more delightful than the last. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcasts with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.